perhaps have already turned to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. As we got to this section of Ephesians, uh, one of you mentioned to me that they couldn't wait to get to the application or the behavior part of this message while others were saying they were basting in the doctrinal section. And I actually thought if the individuals who had mentioned they couldn't wait for the behavior section now want to be in the doctrinal section. (laughs) Because that's the way behavior is. The behavior of Jesus Christ can cut cross-grain and really challenge us as believers to work out His life in our life. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So this morning I want to read Ephesians 4 verses 26 and 27 and then if the Lord be pleased we'll look at verse 28 this afternoon. Ephesians 4 verse 26. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. And you'll remind yourself that what we're doing is, is that we are examining the ways in which we have properly learned Christ. And you'll see that in verse 20 of this chapter. But you did not learn Christ in this way, in what way? Living in your former manner of life. You've not heard that, you've not learned that in this way. Verse 21, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as the truth is in Jesus, there is a gospel proclamation that is true and is of Him, and part of that gospel proclamation is not merely to hear facts and to remain in your former manner of living. It is a gospel that is powerful to the transformation of every individual believer who is trusting Him. It is that renewing of our minds that changes who we are. It's not merely turning over a new leaf or making decisions, although transformation of our inner man does require decisions, but it is the change inside of us. And being changed inside of us, it will change our walk. And I mentioned this last Lord's Day, that the wisdom of Solomon says, as a man does what in his heart? As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The measure of our maturity as believers, the measure of our godliness, lies in how we are thinking What is our habitual thinking? Is it a mindset on the spirit or is it a mindset on the flesh? If it is a habitual mindset on the flesh, then you do not know the Lord. There is something that changes in reality in an inner man when you are born from above. Not of your will, but a crying out 
for mercy and God responding in that mercy to your repentance and faith in Christ. And to be honest, brethren, I think we all know that this is missing in a vast majority of Christian churches today. The gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not to make our evaluation of ourselves merely by our appearances or by what we are externally doing. Isn't it true that the devil appears as an angel of light? Why does he do that? Because men and women have this propensity to make decisions based on appearance, not on the inner man. And folks, what is going on inside of the hearts of people, or you may have even heard this preached, what is going on in your heart in the dark of night is you. And if you're like me, even as a believing person, you don't like what you're battling with. But the evidence of a battle is the evidence of life. The evidence of being delighted in the things of this earth is an evidence of deadness. This is this new life in Jesus Christ. And of course, first thing he tells us to do, we noted last week in verse 25, is to lay aside the lie or to lay aside falsehood and to be continually speaking truth. And we learn that it just doesn't mean to be truthful. It means that we are to be speaking truth in the place of Jesus. We're to be speaking truth as it is in Jesus. And you'll notice that. We've already read it. Look at verse 21. If indeed you have heard him and been taught in him, just as truth is where? It's in Jesus. So speak truth one to another. And folks, this is to be eminently true in the church. The church is to be and breathe in an atmosphere of truth. Everything around us is deceit. Everything. It's darkness. It's men's speculations. It's men's imaginations. And I've said this many times before. How many times has so-called science told you not to do something and 20 years later they said it's okay to do it? It's speculation. It's not the truth as it is in the person of Christ. And folks, one of the ways in which we lived in our former manner of life is that we live for ourselves. We lived individualistically. We made judgments according to how it impacted me. Not what is good for the church, not what is good for the edification of others. We lived our lives for ourselves individualistically. We wanted to be independent. We wanted to be self-sufficient. And folks, that type of thinking is an evidence of ignorance. It is an evidence of corruption. It is the evidence of hard-heartedness. It is the evidence of a darkened understanding. It is the evidence of potentially a life that is separated from God. 
It is deceitful. And folks, if there's anything that our nation is hell-bent on, is that you must do what is right in whose eyes? In your own eyes. You've got to do what's right for yourself. And I've actually had lost people tell me that, and if they even pause in their breath, I just want to say to them, no, I am to do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Period. Whether it's good for myself or not. And you know that in the Old Testament, the Bible in one of the Psalms says that a righteous man will swear even to his his own hurt. In other words, he'll keep the promises that he makes, even if it brings him hurt to do so. There is a former manner of life, and there is a manner of life that we're to be living as the body of Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to our morning emphases in verses 26 and verse 27. And folks, this passage is probably not teaching you what you think it is teaching you. And the reason for that is, is because even believers tend to read the Bible individualistically. In other words, the first thing we think of when we open our Bible is something along these lines. What is it saying to me? What is it saying to me? And that really is the wrong question. The right question is, what is God saying? Period. Once we know what He's saying, then... And only then can we make wise applications in our own life. What is God saying to us in this passage? Well, first of all, I think we need to remind ourselves that Paul is speaking to a body of believers. He's speaking to a what? To a church. He's speaking to a church. What is he saying to the church? Or what is he saying to our church? Be angry is what he's saying to us. Yet without what? Yet without sin. He is saying to local New Testament assemblies to be angry. He's not telling us, if you get angry. He's saying to us, be what? Be angry. He's not even saying when you get angry. He is giving us a command to be angry apart from Sin. Does that surprise you? I would say that you have heard more messages on don't be angry than you have heard a message on be angry. 
We tend to be quick to say if anyone is angry, then they are sinning. And that is not necessarily so. There is an anger apart from sin, and there is an anger that is sinful. Now we know that there is a sinful type of anger because the Bible tells us that. If you'll notice in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, it says, Be angry. And then if you look down later on in that chapter, it says, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. So here he's telling the church, don't be what? Don't be angry after he's already told the church to to be angry. Everybody see that? Colossians chapter 3 states the very same thing. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 says that it is God's will in a local assembly for the men to pray everywhere, lifting up their hands without wrath. Does everybody hear that? Without wrath and doubting. And James chapter 1 and verses 18 and 19 tells us that the anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. So is there a sinful anger? There is a sinful anger. And folks, Christ expects the church to be able to discern between the two. So what is going on here? Well, depending on the Bible that you have and how it is written there in your Bible, you'll notice that verse 26 starts off with a quotation from the Old Testament. And folks, whenever you run across a quotation in your New Testament, if you want to know what God is saying to you, you have to pause You have to turn back to that Old Testament quotation. You have to understand the Old Testament quotation in the context in which it's given so that you can understand how the New Testament writer is using it in your New Testament. So I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 4. Psalm chapter 4. Or better yet, Psalm 4. And you'll notice that in this psalm, it is a psalm of David. Now I'm going to read the first, I'm going to read the whole psalm, and then we'll look at the quotation that's in verse 4. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now here's our quote. Tremble and do not sin. 
Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. And in peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In verse 4 we have our quotation. And the very first word in Psalm 4.4 is the word tremble. If you have a side margin, and you may have a little note there in your margin, in the New American Standard it has a little note, and if you look at the note it will say, in other words, with anger. With anger. And of course, the New Testament, Paul is confirming that that is exactly the type of trembling that David is speaking about by the Holy Spirit. We could read it this way. Tremble with anger and do not sin. Meditate or speak where? In your heart, upon your what? And be still. Everybody see that? So there, there's your quotation. The first half of that is your quotation. David, in this psalm, is shaking because he's angry. Would you call that an intense anger? I mean, there's an anger that we have. There's a measures of anger that we have. There's degrees of anger that we may have. But here's David. He's lying on his bed. At what time? In the night. And he's laying there. And he is upset. He is angry. And folks, this is very important for us to understand that what David is angry about is the circumstances and relationships of life. He's shaking in anger, if you look at verse 2, at the reproach of the wicked to the things of the Lord. How long, O sons of men, will you turn my honor, which is the Lord, to a what? To a reproach. Everybody see that? He is trembling because of these people's love of vanity. You'll see it in verse 2 again. How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? He's angry and trembling in anger because these people's delight is in the things of this life. Look at verse four to seven. You, Lord, have put gladness in whose heart? My heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. Everybody see that? They're delighting in the things of life. Food, drink, frivolity, fun, right? They're delighting in that, but there's a delight way higher than that. But he's upset that their focus is merely on the things of this life. David is angry because of their lack of perception. 
They look at David in verse 6 and are saying, there's no good in David's life. Many are saying, who will show us, believing, that includes him, who will show us any good? And these people are bringing distress upon the godly. If you look in verse 1 of this psalm, you have relieved me in my distress. Everybody see that? And here's an amazing thing, and I have found this true even in my own ministry, that there, the world's lack of fear of the Lord What they don't understand in their distressing of the people of God is that the Lord answers the prayers of godly people. And you'll see that here in verse 3. He says to those sons of men, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I what? When I call to him. Does everybody see that? So what is going on here? You have the sons of men, that is mankind, who do not have the fear of the Lord. They're rejoicing and delighting in the material things of this life. They are taking our honor and glory, the Lord, and it has now become our reproach. They persecute people like that. They have brought distress upon the people of God. And they have looked at these poor, small remnant of godly people and they have said, there's no good being shown to you in this life. We are in the majority. We are in the prosperity. God is showing us good. Look at our bread. Look at our grain. Look at our wine. And what they are absolutely void of is knowing, and they should be fearing, that if the godly bend their knee and pray concerning them, the Lord will what? The Lord will hear. The Lord will hear. So folks, do we see that the anger that is being expressed here is coming from David's own personal circumstances of life? And it's coming because of relationships with mankind. So what David is telling godly people to do is this. Yes, tremble in anger. That should make us angry the dishonor that they are bringing to our Lord. Tremble in anger as the ungodly oppress us, but don't what? Don't sin. And in the nighttime, speak in your heart to yourself. And be at peace. He says, verse 4, be still. And you'll notice in verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and what? And sleep. 
So we can leave this in the Lord's hands, can't we? We can pray. We can tremble. And as we're trembling in anger that is not with sin involved in it, we can take it to the Lord in prayer. And we can leave it with Him. This is what Paul is telling us to do. Be what? Be angry. But do not sin. Now that begs the question, how does a church... Now understand, this is written to a body of people, right? With individual members. In other words, we don't read it individualistically. We read it to a body, but the body has individual members. So it is applicable for you as an individual. How does a church and its members be angry but not sin? Well, it's not my intention to do a theology of speech and anger. But I do want to give a couple of ways in which we can make mistakes and sin. One primary way is this way. In your former manner of life, did you ever get angry? Your anger in your former manner of life was mixed with personal vengeance. Did you hear what I said? Personal vengeance. In other words, you took it to yourself that if that person knocked out one tooth, you're going to knock out two or more. Right? If they're angry, you're going to double the anger back at them. If they hurt you, you're going to really what? Hurt them because you want to show them a thing or two. In other words, our anger was not righteous. And folks, when I mean righteous, I mean this. It wasn't on a balanced scale. It wasn't an eye for a tooth for a... It was, you gave me a black eye, both of your eyes are going to be blackened. It was our expressing anger in personal vengeance. And folks, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12 because the Bible tells us not to do that. And this passage is very helpful for us in understanding what Paul is telling us to do in Ephesians. In Romans chapter 12, he is in the applicational part of the behavior part of this book. And what he tells us in Romans 12 verse 17 in speaking of the nature of our Lord, this new life that is in us, verse 17, never pay back evil for evil 
to anyone. Now I'm pausing there. Did you, did you let that little bomb land in your soul? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right. So can we pay back evil and not pay back what's right? The answer to that is what? Yes. yes. Respect what is right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with how many people? And folks, he didn't say with all the brethren. He said all men. Verse 19, now we're going to know why he says this. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for what? The wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Alright. Whose prerogative is it to take vengeance? Yours? No, it's God's. And folks, just, just to make a little application here that might help us, it's an extreme application, but I do think it will drive it home for us. It is sinful for me to get a gun and go into an abortion clinic and kill the doctor. And then justify it by saying, that man has murdered a lot of babies. Has that gone on? Yes, by people who say that they are believing people. I don't know their state. But it is a misunderstanding of the Scripture. We are to allow room, or we are to allow opportunity, or we are to allow a platform for the wrath of God to be seen. So what is the application? Romans 12, verse 20. <clears throat> if your enemy is hungry, do what? Feeding. If he's thirsty, give him a what? Give him something to drink. Give him the necessities of life. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. My brethren, do not be overcome by evil. In other words, repaying back evil for evil, but overcome evil with, with good. And that really should be our focus. Folks, our former manner of life was an anger that was mixed with personal vengeance. It's never right to merely tell it like it is. You're to tell it for their good. They're good. Wouldn't coming to Christ be good? Wouldn't speaking the truth in Jesus be good? That may involve warning. It may involve admonition. 
but not to be mixed with personal vengeance. And folks, sometimes, and I've done this, and you've done this as believing people, we will use this righteous anger as a cloak for our personal vengeance. We'll say, well, my righteousness, my anger's righteous, so I'm going after you. Folks, remember, this is coming out of our what? Our heart. The other way that we can make a mistake is to merely overlook sin. In other words, we don't get angry with it at all. It's be angry, but don't what? We, we, just, we just overlook it. And the prime example of that, we won't turn to it for sake of time, is the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 5, they've got a member who's committing incest with his mother. And what were the Corinthians doing? Nothing. They weren't angry about it at all. There was no movement inside of them for the glory of God at all. And Paul says, you are puffed up. You're lifted up in pride and you should have mourned with grief about this. Just like David did in Psalm 4. He was angry and he was grieved and he handled it appropriately. Many, many, many churches today do that. They don't see being angry as loving. They don't see being angry as God's kindness. Folks, is it not kind to the Lord to stand in our way when we want to sin? It is kind of the Lord to do that. And the amazing lack of what we call church discipline today in our churches is evidence to what I just said. Folks, the ways, we go back to Ephesians 4, the way to prevent sinful anger is to deal with it scripturally and to deal with it promptly. In 1 Corinthians 5, did Paul deal with that promptly? Once he confirmed that it really was the way that it was, and it was public knowledge, Paul just says, I, you, this is what you're to do, and I'm with you in spirit. You're to deliver such a one over for the destruction of the flesh. Paul was grieved about this. Folks, the way to prevent sinful anger is to deal with it scripturally and promptly. And how do we know that from Ephesians 4 and verse 26? Do not let the sun go down on your what? On your anger. Now, I have made it a personal 
what's the right word? <clears throat> I've made it a personal thing in my life to as quickly as possible handle disruptions in relationships immediately. Now, I don't think that he's just saying, handle it in the daylight. <laughs> Why do I say that? Because in Psalm 4, verse 4, where's David? He's in his bed. Where, what time is it? It's at night. Okay? So I think what he's saying here is this. Handle it promptly and scripturally because our tendency is not to deal with it promptly. In fact, our tendency is to let it seethe inside of us. You ever done that? You ever taken an offense? Maybe somebody looked at you the wrong way, you interpreted it, and then it kind of lodged in your spirit, and then all that day, and all the next day, and all the next day, you're just thinking about it. And the more you think about it, the more you feed it. And the more you feed it, the larger the offense comes. Whereas if you had just dealt with it scripturally and dealt with it promptly right then or as soon as you were convinced that it was a real stumbling block, things would have been what? Mm -hmm. Taken care of. Allowing personal offenses that make us angry seethe inside of us is not doing what Psalm 4 verse 4 says meditate in your heart on your bed. And it's not meditating on what you're angry about. <laughs> it is meditating on who? The Lord. The Lord. And folks, when we don't deal with it promptly, what we're giving a platform for is the devil. It says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. Now folks, if I was to say to you this morning, <clears throat> let's have a members meeting and I have a recommendation. The recommendation is, is for our church to give opportunity to the devil to wreak havoc among us. Do I have a motion? Do I have a second? Any discussion on that? All in favor? Amen. Passed. But folks, that is what you do in a church where you allow perceived offenses to seethe inside of you. You are bringing disruption into the body of Christ. How can I say that? We're no longer living individualistically. We are an organic union, oneness in Christ. What, you, what is going on in your heart does have an effect on this congregation. 
And I've had believers get really mad about things that weren't true and leave a church. And I've had people say to me, it doesn't matter, it only affects me. Get out of my life. And that is not true. Your walk affects our walk. And folks, what is interesting about this is that Paul very rarely uses the word devil. Most of the time in the Pauline epistles, he uses the word Satan. Why does he use the word devil? Folks, the word devil means slanderer. Slanderer. When we don't handle our anger scripturally and properly, we, we are placing ourselves in a position where the devil can slander believing people. He can slander a congregation. He can slander another people, person through you. How does that work? <clears throat> well, here's what we do. There will be a circumstance or an individual, and folks, there's no believer who doesn't sin. And something will occur in your relationship with them. And all of a sudden, you will have speculations in your mind about why this is so. You will think on it, and then you will attribute a motive to that person. And once you have given rise to speculations on why they did or said what they did or say, and once you give them a motive, you will come to a false conclusion. And then when you speak about it, you will be slandering. Does everybody see that? You're slandering because you're speaking untruth. You are speaking deceit. And folks, do you know what happens when you do that? I've seen this as a pastor so many times. We... We want to take sides. We will assess what you're telling us and we will say, you're right or you're wrong. You hardly ever say, what is the Lord's position on this? And that really is the secret of a successful counselor. I really don't care what you think, and I really don't care what the other person thinks. What I care is what God says about your, this subject that we're talking about. And folks, here's the amazing thing, and I'm going to jump forward a couple of chapters here in this book. Because there is all kinds of wrong teaching about this subject. But listen to the quote. He's speaking to a church. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you, church, will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Do you see, do you see that? And folks, that's what he means when he says to have the shield of faith, church, so that when the fiery darts... Did you hear the description? The fiery darts come, they won't land home and inflame you to unrighteous anger. And folks, many, many a church has had church splits and divisions because they have received the fiery dart And when the fire hits your inner man, this is a spiritual dart. When that spiritual dart, that fiery dart, hits your spirit, it inflames you. And you don't handle it rightly. And slander becomes the name of the game. Personal vengeance becomes the name of the game. Folks, what is Paul speaking of here when he says, be angry and do not sin? What what really is he saying to the church here? Folks, what he's saying to us indirectly is to exercise church discipline among ourselves. That's what church discipline is. Church discipline is a habitual offense by a member of that body that is offensive to the glory of God. It is not how you have learned Christ. It becomes known publicly. Don't be like the Corinthians that said, well, this isn't very gentle, it's not very kind, and if I do this, the world's not going to like that because the world's not going to understand. No, you should have mourned in your anger. You should have grieved in your anger. God's honor is at stake. He's given us instructions on what to do. And folks, you know that's what he's saying because if you go down to chapter 5, look at verse 2. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be what? Named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting or suitable, but rather your church body ought to be abounding in the giving of thanks because, verse 5, you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't let people deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the what of God? The wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. Does everybody see that? In other words, folks, our anger should be reflective of whose anger? God's anger. And folks, God's anger is measured 
It's measured. Aren't you glad that God is not explosive in His dealing with you? Aren't you glad He just didn't fly off the handle? Aren't you glad He didn't say, whoops, I got up on the wrong side of the bed? Aren't you glad that if you spill milk, He deals with it appropriate as if you spilled milk versus you stole your neighbor's bank account? A little different, isn't it? And folks, in a church, you have a lot of spilt milk. (laughs) But in a church, there should not be a thief. And I'm going to conclude by making an application to us as parents. Increasingly, I have had to tell parents to be angry about this. When I was raised, back when the dinosaurs roamed the earth in the 1960s, the default was parents were uncontrollably angry about everything. And so the answer to that was, no, be kind, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of who? Of the Lord. Today is the opposite. Today, and I'm speaking generally, parents think that any form of anger, grief, pain about something is sinful. And it's not. I don't know what my children would say today, but I definitely have disciplined before in unmeasured anger. And I've heard my children say, Well, you've also didn't discipline us because you overlooked it. That's parenting, right? But I think if you would ask my children, what was the thing that I got most angry about? I mean, angry. It was when they lied. Because the worst thing an individual can do is lie to themselves. They lie to others because they're lying to themselves. I'm not giving you that as an example necessarily on what you should be angry about, but I am giving you that example to show you there are things you should express anger about as a parent. Because you're being reflective of whose anger? The Lord. Not your personal vindiction against them. Not because they brought you shame in a situation. Not because they're not holding up the name of your family. But for Christ's sake. And children, I I want you to know that it is a mistake 
that if your parents show anger, whether it be in countenance or tone or perhaps even physical discipline, you cannot accuse them of being unkind. I heard a preacher say one time that if you love flowers, you have to hate weeds. If you love righteousness, you have to hate unrighteousness. In parents, in church, there is a measured wrath that needs to be expressed. And here's what I love about this church. And once you turn to Revelation chapter 2, I'm just going to read a verse and then we'll conclude. In Revelation chapter 2, <clears throat> we have a message from Christ to the church at Ephesus. This is a real epistle to a real church in a real situation. <clears throat> And he says to that church at Ephesus, and remember we're, we're in the book of Ephesians, right? He says in verse 2, <clears throat> I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil who? Do you see that? This is the church expressing proper anger. You cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Hallelujah for a church that obeys what the Lord has said. Now folks, what I want you to evaluate today is your measure of anger. Are you angry about the right things? We have a tendency not to be angry about the right things. <laughs> we have a tendency to only be angry against the things that affect us. And make those adjustments in your spirit. And as a church, I want to exhort you to be angry. And don't sin. Put things to the test. Handle it scripturally and appropriately. And you may be here today and you do not know the Lord. And if I may say ever so gently but boldly, you need to be delivered from yourself. The problem is not the environment. The problem's not your circumstances. The problem is not whether you have enough money or you don't. The problem lies inside of you. You are bound in darkness and sin. You are dead in your trespasses. You have offended a holy God. And God in His love has sent His only begotten Son 
Not merely for you to escape the penalty of hell, but to save you from your sins. To make you a new person in Christ Jesus. And to walk no more according to your former manner of life, not because you turn over a new leaf, but because of what He has done inside of you. This is supernatural. This is an act of creation. Won't you come to Christ Jesus and be a new person? Let's stand with our heads bowed.